We cannot forget the declarations that the righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance and that the memory of the just is blessed, nor that one of the marks of the divine displeasure against the wicked consists in cutting off their memory from the earth and making all their memory to perish. Nor can we suffer ourselves to overlook the circumstance that the eleventh chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews is just a noble monumental pile raised by the Spirit in commemoration of elders who had received a good report and whose names, lest they should pass away into oblivion, are legibly inscribed on its surface. End quote. Chambers, in his picture of Scotland, relates what he calls, quote, a strange and ridiculous story, unquote, which is told at Wigton connected with the drowning of these women. Quote, one of the most active persons at the execution, says he, was, it seems, the town officer of Wigton, who, when the girls were raised out of the water and refused to save their lives by the simple expression above mentioned, God save the king, took his halbert and, pressing them down again into the water, exclaimed with savage glee, Then take another drink, my hearties. Heaven for this is said to have afflicted him with an intolerable and unquenchable thirst, insomuch that he never after durst venture abroad without carrying along with him an enormous jar full of water, wherewithal to gratify his unnatural appetite. As he crawled about with this singular load, people used to pass him by with silent horror, for, though his misfortune might have been the result of disease, it was in that superstitious age universally believed to be the manifestation of divine vengeance. End quote. This traditionary anecdote we have given as we find it without vouching for its truth. But the assertion of this popular writer that it was superstitious to regard the calamity which befell this man on the supposition that the story is true as the manifestation of divine vengeance, since it might have been the result of disease, is most certainly unsound in theology. Even granting it to have been the result of disease, this would not prove that it was not a judgment of God. For disease, like everything else, is under his, direct, under his direction and control, and he can make it the minister of his justice as well as any other agent even when it is brought on not by any supernatural infliction, but in the ordinary course of nature. No doubt in cases of this sort, a mistaken, an uncharitable, and even an impious interpretation may be put upon providence in reference to the calamities which befall our fellow creatures. Footnote As an example of this, we may quote the following passage from one of Mr. Robert Bailey's letters. Writing to Mr. Spang, apparently in June 1658, he says, quote, Mr. Gillespie remains there, in London, sorely sick, some think in displeasure that his desires were not granted. However, at his last going to Hampton Court, he got no speech of the protector. If this grieved him, I know not. But he went immediately from Hampton Court to Wombledown, Lambert's house, being Saturday at night and having engaged to preach on Sunday morning before sermon, he had five stools, and after his painful preaching, fourscore before he rested. Thereafter, for many days, a great flux and fever, together with the breach of a halter in the guts, put him to the very brink of death. Many thought it was the evident hand of God upon him, and would not have sorrowed for his death. For myself, I was grieved for seeing the hurt of our college by his removal." End quote. Bailey's Letters and Journals, Volume 3, page 356. 
Mr. Patrick Gillespie, who was then principal of the University of Glasgow, was a zealous protester during the con controversy between the resolutioners and the protesters. And the men who are here said to have viewed his illness as a judgment of God were resolutioners. This accounts for their uncharitable and impious explanation of the conduct of divine providence in bringing that severe illness upon Gillespie. It was the suggestion of the animosity of party spirit and was and it was substantially saying that God was such a one as themselves that threw no light on God's providence toward Gillespie but it threw light upon the temper of their own minds. It indicated plainly enough that had they been entrusted with the government of the world disease would soon have thinned the ranks of the protesters or have even exterminated the whole race. Had this been done, we would have had few martyrs during the persecution of Charles II, for the ministers who refused to conform to prelacy and who suffered for nonconformity were nearly all protesters. The most of the resolutioners, though they had sworn against prelacy, having too little principle and too little courage to make sacrifices for conscience' sake. Happily for the protesters, the government of the world was in more merciful hands than in those of the resolutioners. It may be added that Gillespie was again restored to health. End footnote. But still it must be admitted by every observer of providence, altogether apart from the authority of revelation, that though wickedness and even atrocious wickedness may often pass unpunished in the present life, Yet there are instances in which it is punished in the course of events in so striking a manner as to extort even from the most unthinking and the least inclined to superstition the acknowledgment that such visitations bear the impress of the hand of a righteous God. Quote, in the divine management of the fortuitous events of life, unquote, says Isaac Taylor, quote, there is in the first place visible some occasional flashings of that retributive justice which in the future world is to obtain its long postponed and perfected triumph. There are instances which, though not very common, are frequent enough to keep alive the salutary fears of mankind, wherein vindictive visitations speak articulately in attestation of the righteous judgment of God upon them that do evil. Outrageous villainies or appalling profaneness sometimes draw upon the criminal the instant bolt of divine wrath and in so remarkable a manner that the most irreligious minds are quelled with a sudden awe and confess the fearful hand of God. End quote. Footnotes. Natural History of Enthusiasm, pages 135 and 136. End footnote. Another singular anecdote connected with the drowning of these women has been preserved by the industrious Wadrow. Between nineteen and twenty years after the Revolution, a daughter of Margaret McLaughlin dreamed, it would seem, that her mother appeared to her and bade her go and tell Provost Coltrane of Wigton, who was a very active instrument in her death and who was then alive, that he must soon stand before the bar of the great God to give in his account. Within a few months or a few weeks after this dream, the Provost died. Having gone, in the beginning of November 1708, to hold a justice court at Stranraer, he no sooner stood up to make a speech when the court assembled than his tongue faltered and he fell back. He was immediately carried to his lodgings at which he died within a few days. Wadrow had received some hints of this matter from Mr. Henry Davidson, minister of Galashiels. Footnote. In a letter from him dated August 29, 1717, 
Letters to Wadrow, Volume 10, Number 47, Mr. Davidson says he, Provost Coltrane, was acquainted with the dream some months before his death, but he jested at it. End footnote. But from his extreme care in authenticating as far as possible the information communicated to him, he wrote a letter to Mr. William Campbell, Minister of Kirkinner, requesting him to examine Margaret McLaughlin's daughter, who was then alive, in reference to her dream. The answer Mr. Campbell returned is as follows. Footnote. The letter is dated April 11, 1718. End footnote. Quote. Reverend dear brother, in compliance with your desire and in Elizabeth Milliken's dream, know that I went and discoursed her this day in order to give you the genuine account of it. The said Elizabeth dreamed some weeks or months before the quarter sessions that met, met in November 1708 that her mother, Margaret Lachlison, came to her at the cross of Wigton with garb, gesture, and countenance that she had five minutes before she, she was drowned in Blednoch and said to her, Elizabeth, go and warn Provost Coltrane that he must shortly come here before the tribunal of the great God to answer for his ways. And immediately her sleep was broken, and it made such an impression upon her that she resolved for her own exoneration and the provost's edification, prudently and meekly, to communicate the said dream to the said William Coltrane of Dromoral with the first convenience. But not finding or expecting that, she told the dream to Bailey Lafrise, Dromoral's friend, being married to Lady Dromoral's sister a man of age, gravity, and experience, and an elder in Wigton, and solemnly desired and engaged him to signify the said dream to the said Dromoral, and she doubted not, but the said Bailey Lafrise did tell the said Dromoral. And accordingly, in the beginning of November 1708, he rode from Wigton to the quarter session of the justices of the Shire that met that time at Stranraer, and there on Wednesday at the court table was suddenly struck with a lethargy and was carried to his quarters and continued speechless till Saturday the 8th of November, and then died. Footnote. Letters to Wadrow, Volume 10, Number 57. In a subsequent letter to Wadrow, dated Kirkinner, May 14, 1718, Mr. Campbell says, Next morning after I was favored with yours, I discoursed Elizabeth Milliken, but she cannot give you further satisfaction as to the circumstances of that dream. Only she dreamed it in her own bed in the town of Barnbarak, and all the relations of Provost Coltrane and Bailey Lafrise deny they know anything of the Baileys informing the Provost or the Provost's answer. Letters to Wadra, Volume 10, Number 59. End footnote. Mr. Campbell adds, The said Elizabeth is poor but pious, a widow indeed, the worthy daughter of such an honored, martyred mother. It hath pleased God lately to afflict her by a sore fall in her walking home from this church, and having a large Bible under her arm, and falling with a great deal of violence upon that side where the Bible was, it has broken some of her ribs, and disables her for business. I have been her acquaintance these sixteen years. I know she is poor and straitened, but I never heard her say she wanted anything. If ye please, procure and send Mr. Martin, bookseller at Edinburgh, some supply. Lady Anne Mackenzie, Countess of Valcars, afterward Countess of Argyle. 
Lady Anne Mackenzie was the eldest daughter and co-heiress of Colin, first Earl of Seaforth, by his wife, Lady Margaret Seaton, third daughter of Alexander, first Earl of Dunfermline. In an old manuscript, her father, who was the most powerful of the Highland chiefs next to Argyll, is described as, quote, a most religious and virtuous lord. He caused build the castle of Brahan, and in every barony of his highlands caused build a church, and left a donation to the town of Shanori, called Fort Rose, to hold up a grammar school. He was much liked by his king, and by all that ever was with him, end quote. Footnote, quoted in Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsays, Volume 2, page 33. End footnote. Lady Anne, in early life, lost her father, who died on the 15th of April, 1633, leaving behind him another daughter, Lady Jean. Lady Jean was married first to John, master of Berrydale, and secondly to Alexander, first Lord Duffus, having to her first husband three sons, among whom was George, sixth Earl of Caithness, and to her second, four sons. She died in childbed on the 31st of March, 1648. Lady Anne and her sister, Lady Jean, were served heirs portioners of their father on the 29th of November, 1636, and on the 28th of February, 1637. As in, as in these retours, Lady Anne is placed first, it may be concluded that she was the eldest daughter. The titles devolved on her father's brother, George, who thus became second Earl of Seaforth. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 482. End footnote. Lady Anne received in her tender years a scriptural education, and her heart appears even then to have been touched by divine grace with love to God, and engaged to attend in good earnest to the things which belong to her everlasting peace. Besides the religious instruction received under the domestic roof, she enjoyed the advantages of an evangelical and faithful gospel ministry. She had also opportunities of frequently mingling in the society of such as feared God. Subjected to these and other religious influences, she increased in piety as she advanced in days and years, growing in love to God, in love to His service, and in love to those who gave evidence of being His children. This we learn from the reference which Richard Baxter, the celebrated nonconformist divine, makes to her early life in a dedicatory epistle addressed to her, prefixed to his treatise entitled The Mischiefs of Self-Ignorance and the Benefits of Self-Acquaintance. Speaking of her soul as replenished with the precious fruits of the Spirit and beautified with the image of her Lord, he says, quote, there you can peruse the records of his mercy and think with gratitude and delight how he did first illuminate you and draw and engage your heart unto himself, what advantages he got upon you and what iniquity he prevented by the mercies of your education, and how he secretly took acquaintance with you in your youth, how he delivered you from worldly snares, how he caused you to savor the things of the Spirit, how he planted you in a sound, well-ordered church, where he quickened and conducted you by a lively, faithful ministry, and watered his gifts by the constant, powerful preaching of his word, where discipline was for a defense, and where your heart was warmed with the communion of the saints, and where you learned to worship God in spirit and in truth, and where you were taught so effectually by God to dis discern between the precious and the vile, and to love those that are born of God, whom the world knoweth not, that no subtleties 
or calumnies of the serpent can unteach it you or ever be able to separate you from that love. End quote. Footnote. Baxter's Works, Folio, London, 1707, Volume 2, page 762. End footnote. In addition to early piety, Lady Anne, as she advanced to the age of womanhood, possessed great personal attractions and a combination of the best qualities which can adorn the female mind. David, Lord Balcars, who was married to her aunt, her mother's sister, Lady Sophia Seton, fourth daughter of Alexander, first Earl of Dunfermline, and in whose family on paying them a visit she occasionally stayed for some time, describes her as of a mild nature and sweet disposition, and wise withal. To this nobleman she afterward became more nearly related by her marriage with his son Alexander, her full cousin, who was so hopeful a youth that he had the respect and love of all that knew him, and who in 1650 became Earl of Balcars. Footnote. He was served heir to his father on the 24th of October, 1643, and on repairing to Charles II upon the arrival of His Majesty in Scotland in 1650, was created by him Earl of Balcars. End footnote. She had early made a deep impression on the heart of Alexander, and his affection for her he had long cherished without making it known, either to herself or to anyone else. But at length, about the close of the year 1639, at which time she had been staying for some time with his parents, the strength of his passion overcoming, to a certain extent, the bashful timidity of early and honorable love, he told both his father and mother, three days before she left them, which was in November, of his strong attachment to her, that it had, quote, been rooted in his heart this long time, and that he could conceal it no longer, unquote. He also told his mother that he, quote, had never shown any such thing to her by word, end quote, and earnestly desired her to speak to the young lady in his behalf, which, however, she did not do, though she afterward wrote to her on the subject. His addresses were cordially received by Lady Anne, who indeed appears very soon to have been as deeply smitten with the tender passion as himself. But as the proverb says, the course of true love seldom runs smooth, her uncle, the new Earl of Seaforth, from motives of self-interest, was opposed to the union, though it was highly agreeable to all other friends of both parties. The hearts of the two lovers were indeed too fully engaged for his opposition being deemed a sufficient obstacle to the completion of their wishes. But they were very desirous, if possible, to secure his consent, and this occasioned an interesting correspondence between the families from which our space, however, will permit us to give only one or two extracts. The first letter in the series is from the father of young Balcars to the Earl of Lauderdale, dated November 1639, in which he informs him of his son's attachment to Lady Anne Mackenzie and of the Earl of Seaforth's opposition to their marriage, quote, because he thought he had no new alliance by it, end quote. Lauderdale, in his reply, which is dated 28th of December, after expressing it as his opinion that the Earl of Seaforth, though she married without his consent, would be bound to pay her the portion left her by her father's will, notwithstanding the obligation it imposed upon her to marry with the consent of her uncle, adds, quote, If the case were my own, I would gladly go about to obtain his consent, 
But if he should prove too difficile, I would, as the proverb is, thank God and be doing without his approbation. End quote. By this opposition on the part of the lady's uncle, the pride of young Belcars was somewhat wounded, and his temper in some degree ruffled. But, secure in her affection, it was his resolute purpose, should Seaforth prove unyielding, to act upon the only alternative then left him, according to the Earl of Lauderdale's advice, to marry her without his consent. The spirited youth, mustering up his self-respect, thus writes to John, Lord Lindsay of Byers, quote, Indeed, my lord, I shall be very glad to have his consent to it, and shall use all means for it, since he is her uncle. But if he will not, I believe your lordship shall as publicly see how little power he has of either her or her means, and that I am as little curious for alliance with him as he is with me, if I had no other end before me. For in truth it is neither his alliance nor her means has made me intend it. End quote. Appeals were made to the Earl of Seaforth in favor of the match in letters written to him by Lord Lindsay of Byers and by the Earls of Winton and Dunfermline, and young Balcars also wrote him on the subject in a firm but respectful tone. At last Seaforth, finding that his opposition would prove unavailing, gave a tardy and reluctant consent, and the happy pair, after, his, after this vexatious delay, which young Balcars, it would appear, bore with no small degree of, in, of impatience, were united in wedlock in April 1640. Footnote. Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsay's, Volume 2, pages 34 to 44. End footnote. Among the friends of Lady Anne, who warmly advocated the union, was the Earl of Roth. After her marriage, this nobleman wrote her a homely but warm-hearted letter particularly enjoining upon her the duty of economy in the new situation into which she was now brought. The letter which is dated Leslie, 15th May, 1640, begins thus, quote, My heart, I have sent Mr. David Ayton with your counts since my intromission, footnote, that is, since I acted in your affairs, end footnote. They are very clear and well instructed. But truly your expense hath been overlarged this last year. It will be about 3,600 merks, which indeed I did discontent me when I looked on it. I hope you will mend it in time coming. Your husband, end quote, his lordship adds, quote, hath a very noble heart and much larger than his fortune. And except you be both an example and an exhorter of him to be sparing, he will go over far. Both he, my lord and lady, love you so well that if ye inclined to have those things which will beget expense, they will not be wanting, although it should do them harm. Therefore, go very plain in your clothes, and play very little, and seek God heartily, who can alone make your life contented here, and give you that chief content, the hope of happiness hereafter. The Lord bless you. End quote. Footnote. Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsay's, Volume 2, page 44. End footnote. Quote. This good advice, unquote, says Lord Lindsay, quote, was not thrown away. Never did any marriage turn out happier. Lady Anne proved a most affectionate wife, a most kind and judicious mother, and though of the mild nature and sweet disposition praised by Lord Balcars, was truly, as he adds, wise withal, and capable, as events afterward proved, of heroic firmness and the most undaunted resolution, end quote. 
In the stirring times in which they lived, young Balcars joined the Covenanters, whom he greatly aided both by his counsels in the cabinet and by his valor on the field. He commanded a troop of horse in the Covenanters' army at the Battle of Alford, 2nd of July, 1645, when General Bailey was defeated by the Marquis of Montrose. He was one of the commissioners dispatched by the Parliament of Scotland 19th of December 1646 to King Charles I with their last proposals which His Majesty rejected, upon which the Scottish army surrendered him to the English Parliament and retired from England. He was, however, of undaunted loyalty to his sovereign, which indeed he carried too far, supporting the Duke of Hamilton's engagement. an undertaking justly considered inconsistent with the obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant. When Charles II marched into England in 1651, he was left to command the troops on the north of the Forth, and in the Highlands, where, though his marriage with the daughter of the Earl of Seaforth and his friendship with the Marquis of Huntley and the clans, he had great power. But the affairs of Charles becoming on the defeat of his army at Worcester, to all appearance hopeless, the Earl in December that year capitulated with the English on the favorable conditions and disbanded his regiment. In 1652 he settled with his family at St. Andrews, keeping up a correspondence with his exiled sovereign, and in 1653 he again took up arms and joined in a last ineffectual attempt to uphold the royal cause against Cromwell. In January 1654, his estates were sequestered by Cromwell. Footnote, Lamont's Diary, page 66. One George Fleming had a charter of Balcars, 8th December 1653, and Sacine of Balcars was passed in favor of Hugh Hamilton, Bailey of Edinburgh, by Oliver Cromwell, 7th March 1655. Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsay's, Volume 2, page 104-105. End footnote. And he withdrew to the continent, joining Charles II at Paris. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 167 and 168. End footnote. Lady Belcars, from the strength of her affection for the Earl, shared in the hardships and dangers to which he was exposed, in those troublous times, accompanying him in all his military wanderings. The Earl of Balcars, says Baxter, quote, was a covenanter, but an enemy to Cromwell's perfidiousness, and true to the person and authority of the king. With the Earl of Glencairn, he kept up the last war for the king, for the king against Cromwell, and his lady, through dearness of affection, marched with him, and lay out of doors with him on the mountains, end quote. And when the Earl was driven out of Scotland by Cromwell, she accompanied him to the continent, where for several years they followed the court. During her abode in France, being zealous for the king's restoration, for whose cause her husband had pawned and ruined his estate, by the Earl of Lauderdale's direction, she with Sir Robert Murray got diverse letters from the pastors and others there to bear witness of the king's sincerity in the Protestant religion. Amid all these vicissitudes, in her lot, Lady Balcars experienced much domestic happiness. Her esteem, tenderness, and affection toward the Earl were reciprocated by a corresponding esteem, tenderness, and affection on his part toward her. He knew her worth. He reposed with much confidence in her judgment, and the lapse of time produced not the slightest abatement of the ardor of early affection. 
They were favored with fine children who promised to be lovely and good like themselves and the blessing of heaven seemed to rest upon them. Baxter, in writing to her, speaking of God's goodness to her in both a temporal and spiritual respect, says, quote, You may read in these sacred records of your heart how the angel of the covenant hath hitherto conducted you through this wilderness toward the land of promise, how he hath been a cloud to you in the day and a pillar of fire by night, how the Lord did number you with the people that are his flock, his portion, and the lot of his inheritance, and led you about in a desert land, instructed you and kept you as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10 His manna hath compassed your tent. His doctrine hath dropped as the rain and his words distilled as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb and the showers upon the grass. Verse 2 As his beloved you have dwelt in safety by him and the Lord hath covered you all the day long. Chapter 33, verse 12 When storms have risen, he hath been your refuge, and when dangers compassed you on every side, he hath hid you as in his pavilion, and his angels have pitched their tents about you and borne you up. You have been fortified in troubles and enabled comfortably to undergo them, in war and in peace, in your native country and in foreign lands, among your friends and among your enemies, in court and country. In prosperity and adversity you have found that there is none like the God of Israel who rideth upon the heaven in your help and his excellency on the sky. The eternal God hath been your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 34, 26 and 27. End quote. Footnote. Epistle dedicatory prefixed to the Treatise on the Mischiefs of Self-Ignorance, Baxter's Works, Volume 2, pages 762 to 764. End footnote. Baxter, who thus addresses her, personally knew both her and her husband. The Earl of Balcars had, upon the recommendation of the Lord afterward Duke, Lauderdale, footnote, Lauderdale at first seemed eminently religious, was a warm Presbyterian and zealous for the covenant. He was detained prisoner after the Battle of Worcester in 1651 in different places and was released from Windsor Castle just before the Restoration. In a letter to Baxter dated Windsor Castle, December 14, 1658, there is the following passage. I wish I knew any were fit to translate your books. I am sure they would be they would take hugely abroad, and I think it were not amiss to begin with the call to the unconverted. Quoted in Dr. Calamy's Life by himself in a footnote by the editor, volume one, page one hundred and two. This sounds strangely when compared with Lauderdale's future character. End footnote. The Earl of Balcars had, upon the recommendation of Lord afterward Duke Lauderdale, read some of the works of Baxter, which, after a careful perusal, he reckoned among the best uninspired theological writings. Nor did Lady Balcars, who had also been induced to read them, fall short of her Lord in the judgment she formed of their great merits. And from reading them, she had acquired a veneration for the character of the Hercules of nonconformity, as Baxter is styled by Foster even before she had seen him. On their becoming personally acquainted, he was often a visitant at her residence, being at all times welcome, and when resident in London, she regularly attended his ministry. Baxter, on the other hand, was much attracted by the Christian excellence of her character and regarded her as one of the most eminently pious ladies of her day. Some of his practicable works were published at her request, 
and it is to the dedications of some of his works to her and to his history of his life and times written by himself that we are chiefly indebted for what we know respecting her during the first half of her life. In the following passage from the work last referred to, he informs us of the origin of his friendship with her and pronounces a high econium upon her Christian excellence. Quote, When the Earl of Lauderdale, his, Lord Valcar's, near kinsman and great friend, was prisoner in Portsmouth and Windsor Castle, he fell into acquaintance with my books, and so valued them that he read them all and took notes of them and earnestly commended them to the Earl of Balcars with the king. The Earl of Balcars met at the first sight with some passages where he thought I spoke too favorably of the papists and differed from many other Protestants and so cast them by and sent the reason of his distaste to the Earl of Lauderdale who pressed him but to read one of the books over, that is, read it through, which he did, and so read them all, as I have seen many of them marked with his hand, and was drawn to overvalue them more than the Earl of Lauderdale. Hereupon his lady, reading them also, and being a woman of very strong love and friendship, with extraordinary entireness swallowed up in her husband's love for the book's sake and her husband's sake, she became a most affectionate friend to me before she ever saw me, her great wisdom, modesty, piety, and sincerity made her accounted the saint at the court. When she came over with the king, her extraordinary respects obliged me to be so often with her as gave me acquaintance with her eminency in all the aforesaid virtues. She is of solid understanding in religion for her sex, and of prudence much more than ordinary, and of great integrity and constancy in her religion, and a great hater of hypocrisy and unfaithful to Christ in an unfaithful world, and she is somewhat overmuch affectionate to her friends, which hath cost her a great deal of sorrow in the loss of her husband, and since of other special friends, and may cost her more when the rest forsake her, as many in prosperity used to do that will not forsake fidelity to Christ. Being my constant auditor and over-respectful friend, I had occasion for the just praises and acknowledgments which I have given her. End quote. Lady Balcars had not been many days on the continent when she was visited with a severe domestic affliction in the death of the Earl. His political opponents, having by their slanders prejudiced the mind of Charles against him, he was for, for a time forbidden the court. The grief whereof, says Baxter, added to the distempers he had contracted by his warfare on the cold and hungry mountains, cast him into a consumption of which he died. But death did not find him unprepared. His life had been that of the righteous. According to a sketch of his character in a manuscript of the period, he made, quote, conscience of all his actions as if every day he was to render an account to him that made him. He had his times of devotion three times a day, except some extraordinary business hindered him. In the morning, from the time he was dressed until eleven o'clock, he read upon the Bible and divinity books, and prayed and meditated. Then at half, half an hour past, till near seven, then at ten o'clock to eleven. End quote. Footnote. Quoted in Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsays, volume two, page 107. End footnote. During the whole of his last illness, the Countess watched by his bedside with the most affectionate tenderness, and, painful as it was 
to her to look upon his sufferings, she had the consolation, the highest she could have enjoyed in the circumstances, of witnessing the heavenly peace and joy which filled his soul in the prospect of eternity. On one occasion he comforted her in these words, You ought to rejoice, because I may say, as my blessed Savior did when he was to depart from his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled, for I go to my heavenly Father. I go from persecution and calumny to the company of angels and spirits of just men made perfect. He added, How sweet is rest to a weary soul and such a rest as this is that I am going to. O blessed rest, where we shall never cease day nor night from saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, where we shall rest from sinning but not from praising. At another time, Mr. Patrick Forbes, footnote, Mr. Patrick Forbes was the son of Mr. John Forbes, minister of Alford, who was banished His Majesty's Dominion for life in the reign of James VI for defending the liberty of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Deserting his father's principles, he conformed to prelacy after the Restoration and was made Bishop of Orkney. End footnote. Mr. Patrick Forbes, having asked him, My Lord, do you forgive all your enemies that have so maliciously persecuted you? He replied, I, I, Mr. Forbes, long ago. I bless God that is not to do. On the last day of his life, the countess asked him, My love, how is it with you now? Have you gotten that measure of assurance you desired? He said, All I can answer to you is that I bless my Redeemer for it. I am as full of joy with the assurance I have that my Redeemer is mine and that I am his as my heart can hold. After some little struggling with death, he said to her, My dear, I follow a good guide who will never quit me and I will never quit him. Hold you there, my dear, she replied, for there you are safe. He is a shield and buckler to them that trust in him. He is the munition of rocks. He often observed that afternoon that the Lord called him using these words, Come, Lord Jesus, thou tarriest long. Finding that his death was fast approaching, the countess said to him, Have courage, my love. Your redemption draws near. Your blessed Lord is making fast ready, accompanied by his angels, to attend you to that mansion he prepared for you before the world was. He will go through the valley of the shadow of death with you, upon which he laid both his feeble hands about her neck, and with the small strength he had drew her in, drew her into him and said, I must take my last farewell of thee, my dearest and after expressing the ardor of his affection for her, desired her to pray that the passage might be easy. It was remarkably so indeed, for soon after having looked up to heaven and prayed, he gently breathed out his soul into the hands of the Savior who redeemed it. He died at Breda on the 30th of August, 1659, at the early age of 41. Footnote, Lord Lindsay's Lies of the Lindsay's, Volume 2, pages 104 to 110. End footnote. And his body was brought over to Scotland and buried in the church at Valcars. Footnote, Lamont's Diary, page 123. The remains of Lord Valcars, says this writer, landed at Ely, 2nd December, 1659, and some days after were carried to Valcars, and this 12th of January, 1660, were interred at Balcars in the ordinary burial place with suiting solemnity. End footnote. This nobleman, 
as he well deserved, obtained a high place in the estimation of his country for ability, wisdom, virtue, and piety. Robert Bailey describes him as, quote, without doubt one of the most brave and able gentlemen of our nation, if not the most able. End quote. Footnote. Letters, Volume 3, page 437. End footnote. And Baxter, as, quote, a lord of excellent learning, judgment, and honesty, none being praised equally with him for learning and understanding in all Scotland. End quote. His zeal in the cause of the covenant, with the exception of his concern in, quote, the engagement, unquote, is attested by Mr. Samuel Rutherford, who, as those who have read his letters will readily admit, was not disposed to speak with flattering lips to the greatest. In a letter to him dated St. Andrews, December 24, 1649, he says, quote, Lord Balcars, whose public deservings have been such that I esteem him to have been most instrumental in this work of God. I hope, my Lord, you will pardon me to make a little exception in the matter of the late sinful engagement. End quote. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, White and Kennedy's Edition, page 716. This letter is published in that edition for the first time. End footnote. Crowley wrote an elegiac poem upon his death, in which he celebrates his talents, virtues, and piety, and deplores his premature removal. Nor does he forget to commemorate the worth of the noble lady of the departed. The following extracts are from the concluding verses. Quote, Noble and great endeavors did he bring to save his country and restore his king. And whilst the manly half of him, which those who know not love to be the whole suppose, performed all parts of virtue's life, the beauteous half, his lovely wife, did all his labors and his cares divide. Nor was a lame nor paralytic side in all the turns of human state, in all the unjust attacks of fate. She bore her share and portion still, and would not suffer any to be ill. His wisdom, justice, and his piety, his courage both to suffer and to die, his virtues and his lady too, were things celestial. End quote. By this nobleman the countess had issued two sons and three daughters. Charles, 2nd Earl of Balcars, who died in 1662. Colin, who on the death of his brother Charles became 3rd Earl of Balcars. Lady Anne, Lady Sophia, and Lady Henrietta. The death of the Earl, whom she loved so tenderly, inflicted a deep wound on the heart of Lady Balcars, though she sorrowed not concerning him as those who had no hope and sought consolation by unburdening her grief to her heavenly father, trusting that true to his promise, he would never leave nor forsake her. Having resolved on bringing home his body for interment at Belcar, she left Breda for Scotland, accompanying or following his mortal remains to their final resting place. After the last sad offices of respect were performed to his mortal part, she, state, she started from Belcars for London on the 12th of July, 1660, taking her children along with her. Footnote. Lamont's Diary, page 123. End footnote. In London, where she stayed a considerable time, she had many opportunities of meeting with her friend Richard Baxter, a man well qualified to administer religious consolation to her under the loss of the husband of her youth. 
For while resident in the English capital, a new and an unexpected trial befell her in the conversion of her daughter, Lady Anne, to Roman Catholicism. Lady Anne appears to have been a young person of high promise, but led away by the artful and insinuating persuasions of the Jesuits about the court, and the Queen Dowager seems to have been privy to the business, she became enchanted with popery and openly embraced it. On receiving the news of this conversion, Lady Balcars was so deeply grieved as it would appear to suffer considerably in her health. And anxious for the recovery of her daughter to the truth, she requested Dr. Gunning, afterward Bishop of Chichester, to endeavor to get a meeting with the corruptors of the young lady's faith in order to his arguing with them in her presence against the popish doctrines. But she was unfortunate in the choice of her man. Dr. Gunning, from his bigoted high church principles, being more fitted to confirm her daughter in Romanism than to convert her from it. Quote, the Countess of Balcars, unquote, says Baxter, quote, told me that when she first heard of it, she desired Dr. Gunning to meet with the priest to dispute with him and try if her daughter might be recovered, who pretended then to be in doubt and that Dr. Gunning first began to persuade her daughter against the Church of Scotland, which she had been bred in, as no true church, and after disputed about the Pope's infallibility, had left her daughter worse than before, and that she took to be a strange way to deliver her daughter from popery, to begin with a condemnation of the Reformed churches as no true churches, and confess that the church and ministry of Rome was true. End quote. She next applied to Baxter, a more suitable man, who, to promote her subject, was willing to discuss the question of the Romish faith with any champion of the Romish church in the presence of Lady Anne. But all the efforts of Baxter to obtain such a discussion, footnote, these efforts are stated at length in Reliquiae Baxterianae, part 2, page 219 to 220, to which the reader is referred. End footnote were without success, for the perverters of the young lady's faith kept themselves behind the curtain, and they were, besides, sufficiently conscious of their inability to grapple with a man of Baxter's caliber, as well as too cunning to expose themselves to the risk of losing a convert, of whom they seemed to have prided themselves not a little. At last they stole her away secretly from her mother in a coach. A servant went after her and overtook her in Lincoln's Inn fields. She positively promised to the servant to come back, saying she only went to see a friend, but she never came back. Footnote. How speedily does popery pervert the mind? Her mother told me, says Baxter, that before she turned papist she scarce ever heard a lie from her, and since then she could believe nothing that she said. Among other instances of her disregard to truth, he mentions that she complained to the queen mother of her mother as if she used her hardly for religion, which was false. And yet such are the delusions of popery that writing to her mother from Calais in France, she says, I felt no true love to God in my soul before, but as soon as I turned papist I did, and have now the Spirit of God in His image, which I never before had. End footnote. She was conveyed to France and there placed in a nunnery where, to put the most charitable construction upon her conduct, she possibly might expect to escape the temptations she would encounter in the world and live without distraction in constant meditation upon God and divine things. For that is the reason assigned by the Roman Catholics for the unnatural seclusion of the cloister, 
but where she would be deprived of the opportunities of benevolent activity which are only to be found by mixing with the world and where she would meet with the temptations peculiar to the recluse and peculiar to popish nunneries. Baxter, writing to the Countess, August 25, 1661, when enumerating the mercies of her lot, says, quote, You may remember your comfort in your hopeful issue, though abated by the injury of Romish theft, which stole one of the roses of your garden, that they might boast of the sweetness when they called it their own, I may well say stole it when all the cheat was performed by unknown persons in the dark, and no importunity by you or me could procure me one dispute or conference in her hearing with any of the seducers before her person was stolen away. End quote. Footnote. Baxter's Works, Volume 2, page 761, Dedication of His Mischiefs of Self-Ignorance, dated August 25, 1661. Baxter sent a letter to her the day before she was stolen away, dated December 1st, 1660, which is inserted in Reliquiae Baxterianae, Part 2, pages 219 to 221. Not long after her departure, Lady Anne sent a letter to her mother from her nunnery, dated Calice, subscribed Sister Anna Maria giving the reasons why she had changed her religion. Her mother showed the letter to Baxter and desired him to write an answer to it, which he did, though he knew those in whose power she now was were not likely to suffer her to read it, and it was sent to her by her mother. It is dated January 29, 1661, and among other things he says, quote, We shall have leave to pray for you, though we cannot have leave to instruct you, and God may hear us when you will not which I have the more hopes of because of the piety of your parents and the prayers and tears of a tender-hearted mother poured out for you and your own well-meaning pious disposition. End quote. But all the means employed to recover her to the Protestant faith were in vain. She continued to the day of her death in the nunnery to which she had been carried away, but the particular year in which she died is unknown. What made the fate of Lady Anne the more trying to her mother was that she was her favorite daughter. This, says Baxter, quote, was the darling of that excellent wise religious lady, the widow of an excellent lord which made the affliction great and taught her to moderate her affections to all creatures. End quote. He adds, quote, This perversion had been a long time secretly working before she knew of it all which time the young lady would join in prayer with her mother and jeer at popery till she was detected, and then she said she might join with them no more. End quote. Lady Belcars continued in London for some months after the flight of her daughter to France. At length, when about to depart for Scotland, feeling the death of her husband still pressing heavy upon her, aggravated by the fate of her eldest daughter, and, quote, being deeply sensible of the loss of the company of those friends which she left behind her, end quote. She desired Baxter to preach the last sermon she was to hear from him on these words of the Savior in John 16:32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. This passage of Scripture had often recurred to her thoughts. 
and it seemed so extremely appropriate to her condition and had proved so powerful a means of soothing her grief that she was very desirous of listening to such reflections upon it as might suggest themselves to a man of so enlarged an understanding and so matured experience as was Richard Baxter. With her request, Baxter readily complied, nor was she content with hearing it preached, but requested him to give her a copy of it in writing. And judging it was fitted to be useful to such as might be placed in circumstances similar to her own, she was urgent with him to publish, publish it. Footnote Reliquiae Baxteriani, Part 1, page 120. He published the sermon in the close of the year 1662 in his work entitled The Divine Life, which, besides that sermon enlarged under the title Conversing with God in Solitude, contains two other treatises. The first, of the knowledge of God, from the text John 17.3, and the second, of walking with God, from the text Genesis 5.24. To this work is prefixed a dedicatory epistle addressed to the Countess. End footnote. The exact time when Lady Belcars left London for Scotland is uncertain. From some statements made in Baxter's dedication to her of his treatise, to which reference has already been made, the mischiefs of self-ignorance and the benefits of self-acquaintance opened in diverse sermons at Dunstan's West, and published in answer to the accusations of some and the desires of others, it would appear that she had left London previous to the 25th of August, 1661, the date of the dedication. Quote, If one kingdom, unquote, says he, quote, do not hold us, and I should see your face no more on earth, yet till we meet in the glorious everlasting kingdom we shall have frequent converse by such means as these, notwithstanding our corporal distance. And as I am assured of a room in your frequent prayers, so I hope I shall remain, madam, your faithful servant and remembrancer at the throne of grace. End quote. Footnote. Baxter's Works, Volume 2, page 761. End footnote. Lady Balcars had heard the sermons which composed that volume delivered from the pulpit and so eminently calculated in her judgment were they, from the importance of the subject and from the judicious manner in which it was treated, to be of general utility, that she earnestly solicited Baxter to publish them to the world. His dedication commences thus, quote, Madam, though it be usual in dedications to proclaim the honor of inscribed names, and though the proclaiming of yours be a work that none are like to be offended at that you know that know you, they esteeming you the honor of your sex and nation, yet that you may see I intend not to displease you by any unsafe or unsavory applause. I shall presume to lay a double honor upon you, the one by prefixing your name to these lean and hasty sermons, the other by laying part of the blame upon yourself and telling the world that the fault is partly yours that they are published. Not only yours, I confess, for had it not been for some such auditors as Christ had, Luke 20.20 20 and Mark 13.13, 13, and for the frequent reports of such as are mentioned, Psalm 35.11, I had not written down all that I delivered, and so had been incapable of so easily answering your desires. But it was you that was not content to hear them, but have, but have invited them to recite their message more publicly 
as if that were like to be valued and effectual upon common hearts, which through your strength of charity and holy appetite is so with yours. End quote. Footnote. Baxter's Works, Volume 2, page 761. End footnote. About this time the Countess was visited with severe bodily affliction, on learning which Baxter, subsequently to his writing the above dedication, added a postscript dated November 1, 1661, giving expression to his sympathy, reminding her that she had not to do with an enemy but a father, and subscribing himself her brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. She recovered from this illness, but in the following year she lost her eldest son, Charles, second Earl of Balcars, a very promising boy of about ten or twelve years of age, who died at Balcars on the 15th of October, 1662. Footnote. The Countess had returned to Balcars in May preceding. In May 1662, the sixth day, the said lady returned to Balcars, her two sons having come some months before. Lamont's Diary, page 123. End footnote. He died at Balcars on the 15th of October, 1662, of a singular disease, a stone being found in his heart of great magnitude. Footnote. Reliquae Baxteriani, part 1, page 121. When he was opened, says Wadrow, there was a stone or stony substance found in his heart and that about two inches long, which Sir Robert Murray presented to either Gresham College or some other public collection of curiosities. He was an excellent youth of great parts and piety. Analecta, Volume 1, page 356. Wadrow in the same place says that he died at London, which is a mistake. He also asserts that Baxter in one of his books, which he dedicates to his, the child's mother, says, Though he died of a stone in his heart, yet he had not a, st a heart of stone. He evidently quotes from memory the words printed in italics not being used by Baxter, though he plainly refers to the piety of the boy. End footnote. Charles was buried in the church of Balcars on the 21st of that month, in the night season. The Countess sent the stone taken from his heart to Fort Lauderdale with a view to medical inspection accompanied with a letter. I have sent your lordship, she says, with my lord St. Andrews, a poor pledge for so rich a jewel. This is all I have now for my dear child, my little saint, I may rather say, who is now, I hope, a star of the first magnitude. Oh, my sweet child, how distressed, how sorrowful has he left me with an afflicted family. Were it not too tedious, I think I could have written, though not so learnedly, yet more fully, and that which your lordship and physicians, that I think will be astonished with the bigness of the stone, how his little heart could contain it, would have made use of. My lord, pray let me know what physicians say of it, and if there could have been help for it, and whether they think he has had it from his conception or but lately grown. End quote. Footnote. Letters of Lady Margaret Burnett to the Duke of Lauderdale, page 92. End footnote. Shortly after the death of this child, Baxter, on hearing of the Countess's bereavement, addressed to her a consolatory letter, dated 24th of December, 1662. 
This forms the dedicatory epistle prefixed to his treatise entitled The Divine Life, to which reference has already been made. It is chiefly employed in suggesting such consolatory considerations as might tend to mitigate her grief under this affliction, and a portion of it may be quoted both because it illustrates the train of reflection suggested to her mind on this occasion, and because it is well adapted to be useful to Christian parents when tried in the course of divine providence with the death of their children. Madam, says he, quote, in hope of the fuller pardon of my delay, I now present you with two other treatises besides the sermon, enlarged, which at your desire I preached at your departure hence. I knew of many and great afflictions which you had undergone in the removal of your dearest friends, which made this subject seem so suitable and seasonable to you at the time. But I knew not that God was about to make so great an addition to your trials in the same kind by taking to himself the principal branch of your noble family, by a rare disease the emblem of the mortal malady now reigning. I hope this loss also shall promote your gain, by keeping you nearer to your heavenly Lord, who is so jealous of your affections and resolved to have them entirely to himself. And then you will still find that you are not alone, nor deprived of your dearest or most necessary friend, while the Father, the Son, the sanctifying and comforting Spirit, is with you. And it should not be hard to reconcile us to the disposals of so sure a friend. Nothing but good can come from God. However, the blind may miscall it, who know, who know no good or evil but what is measure, measured by the private standard of their selfish interests, and that as judged of by sense. Eternal love engaged by covenant to make us happy will do nothing but what we shall find at last will terminate in that blessed end. He envied you not your son as too good for you, or too great a mercy, who hath given you his own son, and with him the mercy of eternal life. Corporal sufferings with spiritual blessings are the ordinary lot of believers here on earth, as corporal prosperity with spiritual calamity is the lot of the ungodly. And I beseech you, consider that God knoweth better than you or I what an ocean your son was ready to launch out into, and how tempestuous and terrible it might have proved and whether the world that he is saved from would have afforded him more of safety or seduction, of comfort or calamity, whether the protraction of the life of your noble husband to have seen our sins and their effects and consequence would have afforded him greater joy or sorrow. Undoubtedly, as God had a better title to your husband and children and friends than you had, so it is much better to be with him than to be with you, or with the best or greatest upon the earth. The heavenly inhabitants fear not our fears and feel not our afflictions. They are past our dangers and out of reach of all our enemies and delivered from our pains and cares and have the full possession of all those mercies which we pray and labor for. Can you think your children and friends that are with Christ are not safer and better than those that yet remain with you? Do you think that earth is better than heaven for yourself? I take it for granted that you cannot think so and will not say so. And if it be worse for you, it is worse for them. The providence which, by hastening their glorification, doth promote your sanctification, which helpeth them to the end, and helpeth you in the way, must needs be good to them and you, however it appear to flesh and unbelief. O oh, madam, when our Lord hath showed us, as he will shortly do, 
what a state it is to which he bringeth the spirits of the just, and how he doth there entertain and use them, we shall then be more competent judges of all those acts of providence to which we are now so hardly reconciled. Then we shall censure our censurings of these works of God, and be offended with our offenses at them, and call ourselves blind, unthankful sinners for calling them so bad as we did in our misjudging unbelief and passion. We shall not wish ourselves or friends again on the earth among temptations and pains, and among uncharitable men, malicious enemies, deceitful flatterers, and untrusty friends. When we see that face which we long to see, and know the things which we long to feel, and are full of the joys which now we can scarce attain a taste of, and have reached the end which now we seek, and for which we suffer, we shall no more take it for a judgment to be taken from ungodly men and from a world of sin and fear and sorrow, nor shall we envy the wicked, nor even desire to be partakers of their pleasures. Till then, let us congratulate our departed friends on the felicity which they have attained and which we desire, and let us rejoice with them that rejoice with Christ, and let us prefer the least believing thought of the everlasting joys before all the defiled transitory pleasures of the deluded, dreaming, miserable world. And let us prefer such converse as we can here attain with God in Christ and with the heavenly society before all the pomp and friendship of the world. End quote. The Countess continued to reside for several years at Balcars, watching with maternal care over the education of her only re- remaining son, Colin, who succeeded his brother as third Earl of Balcars, and of her two daughters, Lady Sophia and Lady Henrietta. After remaining in a state of widowhood for upward of ten years, she was secondly married on the 28th of January, 1670, to Archibald, ninth Earl of Argyle. Footnote, Argyle was a widower. His first wife was Lady Mary Stuart, eldest daughter of James, fifth Earl of Murray. She died in May, 1668. End footnote who suffered martyrdom in 1685 and whom she survived for above twenty years. This marriage had the effect of lessening in some measure Argyle's political power by alienating from him the Duke of Lauderdale, whose lady's niece was his first wife. Lauderdale, Tweeddale, and Argyle had formerly been united in politics, but previous to this marriage a difference had arisen between Tweeddale and Argyle. Lauderdale, however, continued to retain his former kindness for Argyle till rumors were afloat that Argyle intended to marry the Countess of Balcars, when Tweeddale succeeded in engaging Lauderdale in his quarrel by persuading him that the young Earl of Balcars, their cousin and pupil, would be ruined by the match. Tweeddale prevailed upon Lauderdale to desire Argyle to leave off the contemplated marriage, but Argyle, scorning to do so, to please Tweeddale, the refusal inflamed Lauderdale, whose friendship for Argyle after that soon declined. Footnote, Sir George Mackenzie's Memoirs of the Affairs of Scotland, pages 179 to 181. End footnote. For nearly eleven years after the second marriage of the subject of our notice, whom we must now call the Countess of Argyle, her domestic happiness was undisturbed by any great domestic trial and she resided sometimes at Inverary, sometimes at Edinburgh, and sometimes at Stirling, where the Earl had a house. 
When at Inverary, the principal place of her residence, she sat under the ministry of Mr. Patrick Campbell, who, for nonconformity, had been ejected after the restoration from that parish of the Highland Congregation of which he was minister, but who resumed his labors there in 1669 under the first indulgence which was granted that year. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 328. Volume 2, page 133. End footnote. When at Edinburgh and at Stirling, and when occasionally sojourning in other places, she attended the sermons of the ejected ministers both in private houses and more publicly. Footnote. Diary of her daughter, Lady Henrietta. Wadrow Manuscripts in Advocates Library. Volume 31, number 8. End footnote. Her two daughters, Lady Sophia and Lady Henrietta, in whom she found more comfort than in her daughter, Lady Anne, quote, though widely different in character, the one being as gentle and retiring as the other was energetic and enterprising, were united in one faith, one love to their Savior, their mother, and each other. End quote. Like-minded with their mother in, in regard to the persecuted Presbyterian Church, they preferred the sermons of the proscribed ministers to those of the hireling curates. Of the gentle and retiring Lady Henrietta, it is unnecessary here particularly to speak as she will form the subject of the subsequent sketch. Quote, Solitude and retirement in which she could commune with her own heart and be still had ever a peculiar charm for her. Lady Sophia, on the contrary, was a woman remarkable for the brightest faculties, cheerful and witty, and endowed with that presence of mind in the hour of need which is justly de- denominated heroism. End quote. Footnote. Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsay's, Volume 2, page 144. End footnote. By her sprightliness and humor, she diffused an agreeable hilarity over the society in which she mingled, and her jesting powers she sometimes exercised at the expense of the unprincipled persecutors of her day, for whom she entertained a just contempt. The following anecdote relating to a visit she paid to Adam Blackadder, son of the famous John Blackadder, then only an apprentice boy to a merchant in Stirling, when about the close of the year 1674 he was imprisoned in the tollbooth of that town for refusing to sign the bond in reference to conventicles, called the Black Bond, and for being at conventicles, well illustrates her principles and character, though an instance only of sportive pleasantry, in which she indulged in the free and unrestrained exuberance of her youthful spirits, for she was probably at that time not more than eighteen years of age. Quote, While I was in prison, unquote, says Adam, quote, the Earl of Argyle's two daughters-in-law, Lady Sophia and Lady Henrietta, and Lady Jean, his own daughter, did me the honor and came to see me, where I remember Lady Sophia stood, stood up on a bench and arraigned before her the provost of Stirling, then sentenced and condemned him to be hanged for keeping me in prison, which highly enraged the poor fool provost. Footnote. The provost, according to Adam's account, was a violent persecutor and ignorant wretch. When on being apprehended early in the morning by two messengers, Adam was brought to the provost. The first words the provost putting on his breeches, spoke to him were, Is not this dry work, sir, that women be troubled with the like of you? Adam answered, You have got a bra prize, my lord, that has clocked a poor prentice, 
Blackadder's Memoirs, pages 301-302. End footnote. Though it was but a harmless frolic, it seems he complained to the council of it and the good earl was like to be brought to much trouble about it. End quote. When resident in Fife, Lady Sophia went to hear the sermons of Mr. John Blackadder and others who preached very frequently there, both in the fields and in private houses. In Blackadder's memoirs, we are informed that on Sabbath, the 11th of January, 1674, when only about 17 years of age, she came to hear that venerable minister preach at the house of Alexander Hamilton, Laird of Kincal, a man of eminent piety, liberality, and courage, whose house was a shelter to many of the persecuted ministers in their wanderings, and in which, though it was within a mile of St. Andrews, the seat of Archbishop Sharp, they often preached to great numbers, none being excluded, who came to hear. She was, however, prevented from hearing sermon on that day by one of those interruptions which conventicles at that time so frequently met with. The militia of St. Andrews hurried out by the wife of Archbishop Sharp, a woman of a similar spirit with himself, came to Kincow with muskets, lighted matches and pikes under the command of one Lieutenant Doig, with above a hundred of the rabble, and many of the disaffected students, gentlemen and some noblemen's sons, and drew up before Kincow House Gate at some distance. They did not, however, interrupt Blackadder, who was delivering a lecture from Psalm 2 to a numerous auditory, the long gallery in the two chambers being full, and also a multitude in the close. But some of the ill-disposed, having, after the singing of the psalm at the close of the lecture, got into Mr. Hamilton's stable, and having taken away his horse and the horses of some others, Mr. Hamilton, who had been standing without the gate and looking on, observing this, struck with a cane at the fellow who had taken his horse, upon which some of the disaffected students from behind his back took hold of the cane, pulling it out of his hand, which occasioned his falling to the ground. This was followed by an altercation between the friends of Mr. Hamilton and the militia, but no serious harm was sustained by any of the parties. At this time, many who were proceeding to the meeting turned back on hearing the alarm, among whom were Lady Sophia Lindsay and some company with her who were coming down the brae above the house of Kinkell. An old man, flying from the meeting, called out to them to stay, and on their inquiring what was the matter, he cried in great terror, A massacre! A great massacre! Yonder, for I saw some of the best, meaning Mr. Hamilton, fall ere I came away, and they were stripping the women. This so affected them that they went back to a landward man's house. Meanwhile, the lieutenant with the militia and the rabble marched back to St. Andrews, after which the people again convened, and the gates being shut, and a watch set on the battlement to observe the motions of the militia, they heard without interruption Blackadder preach a very moving sermon on these pathetic words in Jeremiah 31.18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn now me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. But Lady Sophia and those with her were not present at the sermon. Not knowing that the militia had left Kincal, they sent a boy to ascertain the state of matters. The boy, on coming to Kincal House, was admitted within the gate and allowed to hear with others in the close, but not suffered to go away till the sermon was ended. This made Lady Sophia and her company conclude that all was not well, 
and they remained where they were expecting to hear distressing news. After sermon the boy returned, and on being asked what detained him, he said he had been hearing a preaching where all the folk were weeping, which yet alarmed them more, till he told them that no injury had been done to anyone. Upon this, quote, Lady Sophia, with several in her company, came and stayed in the Kincal house that night with the laird and the minister, with whom she then made good jest of the pitiful alarm she had got. End quote. Footnote, Blackadder's Memoirs, Manuscript Copy. See also Printed Edition, pages 160 to 163. End footnote. That the Countess of Argyll exerted a beneficial influ- influence in promoting in the Earl both the sense of piety and the love of liberty is undoubted. During the first eleven years of their union, already referred to, as well as during several previous years, he was connected, it is true, with the persecuting government of Charles II and complied with it to an extent which was unworthy the son of the pro- proto-martyr of the Solemn League and Covenant and of so eminent a saint as was his mother. But while this admitted, and it occasioned him afterward deep remorse, drawing from him free acknowledgments and deep contrition on the, on the scaffold, it is at the same time only justice to state that he rather passively yielded to the persecuting measures pursued by the majority of the government than gave him his cordial approbation or actively carried them into effect. He sometimes shielded the Presbyterian ministers from persecution. Owing to his protection, Argyllshire suffered less for nonconformity than many other counties of Scotland. Footnote. Letter of Mr. James Bowies, Minister of Campbelltown, after the Revolution, to Wadrow, among Letters to Wadrow, Volume 11, Number 190, Manuscript in Advocates Library. End footnote. Toward the close of his career, the principles of religion and civil freedom, which had been instilled into him in early life, asserted their claims elevating his patriotism above personal considerations, and these redeeming traits of his character were owing in no small degree to the influence exerted on his mind by the benevolent sympathy and favor for the persecuted Presbyterians which distinguished his lady and her pious public-spirited daughters by her first husband, Lady Sophia and Lady Henrietta, for both of whom he entertained a high esteem as well as a strong and tender affection. During the persecution, many excellent women, as we have already seen in the introduction, even when they did not suffer by any proceedings of the government instituted directly against themselves, yet suffered greatly through the unjust and illegal proceedings of the government against their husbands. About the close of the year 1681, the Countess began to experience this kind of trial. After the Parliament had enacted that all officers in church and state should take the test, an oath which, as Wadrill well observes, is a medley of popery, prelacy, Erastianism, and self-contradiction. Footnote. The Parliament passed their act concerning the test on the 31st of August, 1681. In taking it, the swearer, among other things, owned the ecclesiastical supremacy of the monarch in its fullest extent, condemned as unlawful all resistance to the king under any pretext or in any circumstances whatsoever and renounced the obligation of the National Covenant and of the Solemn League in Covenant, while at the same time, with flagrant inconsistency, he professed his adherence to the Scotch Confession of Faith of 1567, which asserts that Christ is the only head of the Church. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, pages 295 
and 297. End footnote. Argyle, on being called to take it November 3rd, 1681, as a privy councillor and one of the commissioners of the treasury, though he had in his place in Parliament opposed its imposition, swore it with this explanation which he subscribed, quote, I take it in as far as it is consistent with itself and with the Protestant religion, and I declare that I mean not to bind up myself in my station and in a, in a lawful way, not to wish or endeavor my alteration which I think to the advantage of church or state, not repugnant to the Protestant religion and my loyalty, and this I understand as, my, as a part of my oath. End quote. For taking it with this explanation, he was imprisoned in the castle of Edinburgh on the 9th of November, prosecuted before the Justiciary Court, and by the unanimous verdict of a jury of his peers, was found guilty of high treason, leasing making. Footnote. Leasing making was a crime, the creature of an act of Parliament, which consisted in, in misrepresenting the actions of the king to any of his subjects, or vice versa, those of the subjects to the king. It inferred capital punishment. End footnote. And leasing telling, but was acquitted of perjury by a plurality of votes. Footnote. Fountain Hall's decisions. Volume 1, pages 160, 161, and 166. Drummond's Memoirs of Sir Ewan Cameron of Lockheel, page 206 and 207. End footnote. The Privy Council, upon this verdict being given in, sent a letter to the King informing him of what had been done and desiring permission to give orders to the Justiciary Court to pronounce sentence upon Argyle in conformity with the verdict. It being the design of the Duke of York, the prime agent in all this, to bring him to the scaffold, that the Protestant party might be deprived of a head, and to annex his jurisdiction to the crown, and to parcel out his lands. Footnote. Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 166. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 337. End footnote. The Countess was now greatly alarmed for his safety as indeed there was too much cause of alarm, and she would in all probability have at this time been subjected to the trial which befell her in 1685, when he was beheaded at the Market Cross of Edinburgh, had not her daughter by her first husband, Lady Sophia, been the means of enabling him to escape from the castle. Influenced by sympathy with her mother, as well as by affection to the Earl, and probably also impelled by the tender passion of love, for she was supposed to be at this time affianced to the third son of the earth. Footnote. This was the Honorable Charles Campbell. The date of the marriage is uncertain, and none of their descendants in the male line exist. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 105. End footnote. The third son of the Earl by his first wife, to whom she was afterward married, Lady Sophia undertook to effect his escape and effected it with singular dexterity and success about 8 o'clock in the evening of Tuesday the 20th of December, 1681. Footnote. On the 19th, the day preceding, believing that his life was in danger, the Earl began to entertain thoughts of attempting his escape, and on the morning of the 20th he had some intention, though no fixed resolution, of attempting it that evening, but had not then disclosed his intention to any individual. Learning about ten o'clock in the forenoon that the Duke of York had absolutely refused to suffer him to see him till His Majesty's return, 
and learning further about noon that some troops and a regiment of foot were come to town, and that the next day he was to be brought down from the castle to the common jail, from which criminals were ordinarily carried to execution, he determined to attempt his escape that very night, and about five o'clock in the evening he gave directions in reference to it, not intending to make the attempt till near ten o'clock. About seven o'clock in the evening a friend who came up from the city dissuaded him from his purpose, alleging the impossibility of its succeeding, new orders having been privately given for more effectually securing him, the castle guards being doubled, and none suffered to go out without showing their faces, which several ladies had already been required to do. But this information, by increasing his apprehension of his danger, only strengthened his determination, and in less than an hour after he was enabled by the aid of his favorite stepdaughter to carry it into effect. These particulars are taken from a scarce folio entitled The Case of the Earl of Argyle, privately printed and circulated by his friends after his escape, page 122. Whether the plan was of her own contrivance does not appear, but the manner in which she put it into execution as related to Lady Anne Lindsay by her father, Earl James, Lady Sophia's nephew, is as follows. Quote, having obtained permission to pay him a visit of one half hour, she contrived to bring as her page a tall, awkward country clown with a fair wig, procured for the occasion, who had apparently been engaged in a fray, having his head tied up. On entering, she made them immediately change clothes. They did so, and on the expiration of the half hour, she, in a flood of tears, bade farewell to her supposed father, and walked out of the prison with the most perfect dignity, and with a slow pace, end quote. Footnote, Memoirs of Lady Anne Barnard, quoted in Lord Lindsay's Lives of the Lindsays, Volume 2, page 147, end footnote. Led by the gentleman who had accompanied her to the castle, Argyle follows as her page, holding up her train. In passing the guards, Argyle was in no small danger of being discovered, the suspicions of some of them being awakened. But with singular tact, she succeeded by an ingenious device suggested on the spur of the moment in allaying their suspicions. Quote, the sentinel at the drawbridge, unquote, continues the same writer, quote, a sly Highlander eyed her father hard, but her presence of mind did not desert her. She twitched her train of embroidery, carried in those days by the page, out of his hand and dropping it in the mud. Varley, she cried in a fury, dashing it across his face. Take that, and that too, adding a box on the ear, for knowing no better how to carry your lady's garment. Her ill treatment of him and the dirt with which she had besmeared his face so confounded the sentinel that he let them pass the drawbridge unquestioned. End quote. Footnote. See also Fountain Hall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 167. Wadrill's History, Volume 3, page 337. Law's Memorials, page 210. In the case of the Earl of Argyle, it is said, page 122, that within half an hour after, that is, after a friend had visited him at seven o'clock in the evening, by God's blessing he got safe out, questioned pretty warmly by the first sentry, but not at all by the main guard, and then after the great gate was open and the lower guard drawn out double to make a lane for his company, that is, Lady Sophia, in whose train he followed, one of the guards who opened the gate took him by the arm and viewed him. But, it pleased God, he was not discerned. 
End footnote. Having passed all the guards, she entered her coach, which was waiting for her at the outer gate, while Argyle, agreeably to his assumed character, stepped on the, on the hinder part of the coach, and on its coming opposite the way-house he slipped off and shifted for himself. The ability and success with which Lady Sophia effected the escape of Argyle lifted off a load from the mind of her mother, who had now the comfort of reflecting that though he was still exposed to the risk of apprehension before he reached Holland, that sanctuary of safety, he was in the meantime out of the hands of his enemies, and while her daughter became from this heroic action more endeared to her than ever, she did not forget that her first and highest acknowledgments were due to God, who in his merciful providence had crowned this enterprise with success. Footnote, Diary of Lady Henrietta Campbell End footnote Very different were the feelings of the government who, on being informed of Argyle's escape and of the manner in which it was brought about, were so enraged that it was even proposed in the Privy Council publicly to whip the young lady through the streets of Edinburgh. So gallant, says Aikman, were the Scottish Cavaliers. Footnote, Aikman's History, Volume 4, page 591. End footnote. No punishment was, however, inflicted upon her at present. Footnote, Fountainhall's Decisions, Volume 1, page 167. End footnote. Though she was afterward imprisoned several weeks for the noble deed. After his escape from the castle, Argyle, according to a previous arrangement, met with Mr. Pringle of Torwoodley, who conducted him in safety to Northumberland to the house of Mr. William Veach, who again conducted him safely to London, where, and in the neighborhood, he was concealed and hospitably entertained by Mrs. Smith, the wife of a wealthy confectioner, and a woman of eminent piety, wisdom, liberality, and patriotism, till he found the means of getting safely over to Holland. It was when at this time sheltered in London that he wrote a poetical address to Lady Sophia, his fair deliverer. It is dated London, April 18, 1682, and though it has no peculiar merit as a poetical composition, a part of it may be given as interesting from the circumstances in which it was written. It commences thus, quote, Daughter, as dear as dearest child can be, Lady Sophia, ever dear to me, this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.